Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. An Erio's original. I was born with a special gift the ability to mentally transform any situation into the worst case scenario. In my own brain. My therapist calls my gift catastrophizing. And that's why I'm uniquely qualified to scrutinize and analyze history's greatest disasters and find out who's to blame. They say history repeats itself. Not on my watch. My name is Rebecca Delgado Smith, and I am the alarmist. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning into The Alarmist, a comedy podcast where we talk about history's greatest tragedies and figure out who's to blame. Today we're discussing the 1776 Great Fire of New York. Here's what you need to know. We already know the story of how a band of colony patriots secretly dumped 342 chests of tea into the harbor during the Boston Tea Party of 1773. Throughout the Revolutionary War, colonial resistance took many forms. And while Bostonians turned to tea, it was New Yorkers who turned up the heat with the Great Fire of 1776. After British troops seized Boston at the beginning of the Revolutionary War, the Continental Army was formed with George Washington as its commander-in-chief. British General William Howe and his fleet of 34,000 troops spent the spring of 1776 planning an invasion of New York. By the summer, royal forces occupied Staten Island and Long Island, and New York City was next. On August 17, the Provincial Congress of New York evacuated the city, advising women, children, and the infirm to flee in anticipation of a British seizure. George Washington and the Continental Congress were faced with a grim reality. Retreating from New York City would provide the British with secure barracks, a robust trading post, safe harbors for the Navy, 
and a prime location for their military headquarters. Unable to defend the city any longer, the only pragmatic military strategy that remained was destroying the city before the British took control. While this had been and would continue to be a tactic used in war, by the 18th century, destroying civilian property was increasingly viewed as a heretical and uncivilized act. While it would provide the Whig Americans with a slight military advantage, the purposeful destruction of a great city was no way for an enlightened new nation to behave. A short six days after British forces won possession of the city, a huge victory for the Loyalists, a fire began to smolder. Sometime between midnight and one in the morning on a dry, windy Saturday in September, flames were spotted near the White Hall Slip, a busy shipping dock in Lower Manhattan. The fire blazed through the disreputable Fighting Cock's Tavern into a blacksmith's shop and engulfed the ferry house as onlookers shrieked and fled north to the commons. Southeasterly winds fanned the flames, which residents reported suspiciously sprang up in multiple locations throughout the city. British troops from the 5th Brigade sprang into action, pulling down wooden structures in hopes of making breaks in the roaring fire. Still, the fire accelerated down Broad Street. The Grand Trinity Church, which served a congregation loyal to the British crown, erupted into a vast pyramid of fire before being diminished to ashes. The Lutheran Church was wholly consumed. As sailors, soldiers, and townspeople struggled to stop the flames, they encountered perpetrators who appeared to be arsonists, sabotaging the city. A carpenter and loyalist named Wright White was seen cutting the handles off of fire buckets and stabbing a woman who was trying to take water to the fire engines. On the spot, he was hung by the neck and then hung by his heels on a signpost. After burning and obliterating much of the city's infrastructure, the fire finally dwindled around 10 in the morning the following day. For days afterwards, smoke and ash floated above New York City, once one of the colony's proudest cosmopolitan hubs, now reduced to a singed ghost town of ruins. Soldiers stormed through the city, grabbing anyone who appeared to be setting fires and tossing them into the frenzied flames. A woman, caught with matches and combustibles in her pockets, was captured by British troops and flung into the inferno without a second thought. Captain Amos Fellows of the 22nd Connecticut Regiment was reportedly found holding a burning torch against the roof of a shed before he was captured and jailed. Lieutenant Richard Brown of Pennsylvania was executed on the spot while in the act of setting fire to homes. Fun Facts, a.k.a. Death Stats. By the night of the fire, 80% of New York City's population had fled due to British occupation, leaving only around 5,000 residents in a city built for 25,000. It's been estimated the fire destroyed between 10 to 25% of the buildings in the city. Depending on the source of reporting, anywhere between 400 to 1,000 buildings were lost. The British arrested over 200 Patriot sympathizers as primary suspects involved in setting the fire. All were eventually released when no hard evidence could be found. With us today, we have producer Clayton Early. Hello. 
fact checker Chris Smith. Hi. And our very special guest today is professional alarmist Jay Bologna. Hi, Jay. Hey, how's it going? So Jay is a disaster researcher for the Party Rand Graduate School. He's also a friend. And why don't you explain to our listeners, Jay, a little bit about your job? What does it entail? Yeah, so I I guess I kind of have two jobs. I'm a, I'm a PhD fellow with the Party Rand Graduate School, and then I do public policy research is kind of the other part of my job. So my main focus in my research is I research risk um, and the ways that risk is created or or hopefully the way that we can create public policy to reduce it. And to kind of think of, think of risk really simply, it's you can think of it as a mathematical equation. I study the ways that risk equals hazard times vulnerability. Um, mm. So if you want to reduce your risk, you either need to reduce the hazards that are out there or the vulnerability that your community Mm. has to those hazards. Fascinating. Aren't we so excited to have him on today? Yeah, this is thrilling. (laughs) Yep. Rebecca's, uh, Rebecca worked with uh, uh, Jay's newly married and his, mm-hmm. his new wife. Congratulations. They were, they were buddies. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you should have seen Rebecca and Jay when we went to a party and they were together and they started talking about <laughs> tragedies and they started talking about risk and it was just fireworks. Spark, <laughs> yes, it was apart. fireworks. <laughs> I was just <laughs> rattling off books that she needed to read that were probably way too academic to actually be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have a notes app just for Jay's recommendations. Yep. <laughs> um, so, Jay, we like to start off the show by asking our guests, what is something that's recently alarming you? What's something that's keeping you up at night? Oh, my goodness. Um, I think something that's keeping me up at night is, well, so I live in Los Angeles, as, as you, you do as well. Um, and flood risk in Los Angeles, mm. as we were sort of recently shown with the, the rains recently, is is a big a big hazard that this part of the world is exposed to normally. And it's not one that we've had to deal with the time that I've been living here because we've been in drought. And also most of the 20th century we've been, or 20th and 21st centuries, we've had the benefits of a large amount of infrastructure that was built up to sort of control that flood, those floods. But as sort of climate change changes weather patterns and the ways that that rain falls, as well as the fact that Southern California is pretty much entirely paved over with cement now, um, flood risks are changing pretty rapidly in this part of the world. And so I think it's something that we haven't thought about a lot about when we think about disaster in Southern California. We think about wildfire and earthquake. Mm. Um, but I think I was, you know, I think we were all sort of slapped with the fa- in the face recently that this part of the world needs to be thinking a little bit more about flood uh, than, than maybe we have been. And my own personal house was part of that. We had some water in our basement. Oh, gosh. So, uh, uh, now nothing I too get serious. It. Now um, and obviously, I get it. obviously, people in, in other parts of the state um, had much more drastic impacts from, from the rain. But I think that's something that's been keeping me up a little bit at night recently has been, you know, what is a what is the big flood going to look like in in Southern California and and it's going to happen? Jeez, add that to the list. Right. <laughs> Fits oh. right in, huh? Yeah. <laughs> right. Well said, Jay. Um, I'm trying to you know you know a What's... a risk that perhaps New Yorkers didn't see coming at the time in 1776 was the fact that. Potentially, one of their own could have set their entire beloved city on fire. Mm. Would you say that's? Would you say that's accurate when assessing risk? Perhaps. Well, 
not. I think perhaps. I think that there's definitely some people who did foresee that as a risk that I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, because risk is a social, a social construct. And so there's always people in, I think your podcast shows this, there's always people to blame. That, um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so I was thinking we could start uh, with something uh, that could have been avoided. Uh, At least we try to avoid it right now. Wooden shingles. Mm. Let's put those up on the board. Okay. This is according to Richard Howe, the Gotham Center for New York History. In 1761, the extensive destruction made by fire prompted the legislature of the province of New York to pass an act for the more effectual prevention of fires. The act's principal concern was the number of houses in the city that were still roofed with wooden shingles. It decreed that in 1766, every dwelling house or building whatsoever, whether public or private, shall be made of stone or brick and roofed with tile or slate. Existing buildings were grandfathered, though any future re-roofing had to be done with tile or slate. Builders and property owners protested that there was not enough slate or tile available to roof all the new buildings, and the act was suspended until 1774. In 1774, residents once again protested the act, this time citing not only the scarcity of materials and their cost, but also the hardship to workers in the building trades. In 1775, the Slate and Tiles Act was radically amended to make it into just the opposite of what what it had been originally. It would now be lawful to erect any building in New York with wood and cover the same with shingles or boards. Eighteen months later, a large part of the city was burnt to the ground in a single night. Right. So we're talking, this is that time period. This is 10 years before they could have passed a law. They could have made some changes that would have helped at least the stop the spread of the fire. But tale as old as time, right? I'm curious to know Jay as a a risk researcher, if I feel like I might know where this answer is going to go, but like, is there an equivalent, a modern day equivalent here in LA that you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe we have all of, you know, X, like equivalent to a wooden shingle that is like a disaster waiting to happen here in LA that you worry about? Oh, absolutely. I mean, earthquake retrofitting is a huge, I mean, I think you can point to the exact same sort of policy cascade of these things have been delayed for legitimate economic reasons and various concerns, but we've been working to retrofit uh, buildings for earthquake safety around Southern California for for years and years and years. Mm -hmm. And it's, it takes a long time. We're still in the process. Luckily, we weren't as foolish as it seems. Well, foolish is a bad way to say it, but um, as uh, maybe uh, nearsighted as mm-hmm. the folks in New York mm-hmm. City were at the time to reverse course on that policy. But um, but yeah, I think earthquake retrofitting in, in Southern California is a really big one. I mean, shake shingles are still a thing. Tell yeah. me more about <laughs> this are. so I can spot them and run. Yeah, I mean, uh, mountain areas, they look very rustic. They're very nice. Mm. Um, Yeah, it's like a design choice. I feel like people want the look of it now. Yeah, and there's um, new shake shingles can be sort of made. I'm not really quite quite clear on the chemistry of it all, but they can be sort of made in a way that makes them a little bit more fire resistant. But 
a lot of, you, you see buildings with shake shingles still. Um, and, uh, I mean, we can blame big shingle here, like, like <laughs> put them up on the board like you did, but I, I do think that from a political economy standpoint, what you were just describing tells me that we should also maybe point the finger a little bit at the people who are advocating for that policy to be reversed mm, for that yes. decade plus that existed. You know, they, they not only wanted to slow it down for, like I said, what might have been very le- legitimate economic concerns. There's not enough slate. There's not enough stone. But also, they ended up just straight up reversing it in the end, right? And uh, mm. from, we, I don't know exactly that much about, you know, the, the province of New York and the way that it was governed and how democratic it might have been. Maybe this was a little bit more of a decision from on high with a few mm. squeaky wheels. But to some extent, we need to blame the primary actors in that political economy in New York. Um, I love you know, that. People didn't want to make the place safer and then, you know, saw what happened. Right. So how do we, is that just like standing in the way of safety measures or like governance? How do you want to phrase that? The protester. Careful what you protest for. Careful, <laughs> okay. Yeah, careful what you protest for. Uh, decision made. I, it's hard like well, I said, because I don't think it was like a city council sort of thing. Right. It, right. it seems but. like the policymakers were actually trying to do a good thing. But the pushback was coming from the city, the people. The yeah. People. yeah. The other thing is that, and I, we'll get into this more with our guest expert, but I also mm-hmm. think that there were sort of British figureheads in a lot of these um, governing positions in New York at the time. So I, I'm, I'm not sure if there was a sort of uh, sort of detachment from sort of a boots on the ground experience of what it's like to live in New York. Um, and we'll get into that, I guess, with, right. with Ben. But. I mean, well, in like a colonial relationship too, how much did people suspect that this was just a, you know, a, a desire right. by British merchants to sell slate and stone building materials in, mm-hmm. in that they weren't needed. So, I mean, you get wrapped up in the the causes of the revolution in the first place here too. Yeah, it's a lack of trust maybe mm-hmm. for city officials mm-hmm. or or people who are making the policy. Mm. Now, but you can see parallels to that in in the modern era a lot with things like say river diversions in the Mississippi River Valley as we've sort of started to try to adapt the Army Corps of Engineers and other other entities have tried to adapt floodplains in that part of the world to um you know, due to sea level rise, increased rains, uh, all of the all of the accoutrement of climate change, um, and you see people pushing back against that for cultural reasons, for all kinds of reasons that might be legitimate in the moment, but do end up if you believe in the long term, the prevalence of the long term uh, risk of hazard incidents there being seeming a little f- short sighted. Right. Yeah, so um, it's maybe like not thinking about the bigger picture. Yeah. Um, sure. Nearsighted policy. Makers, I well again, I don't think it was the the policy makers or the advocates. I, yeah, policy, policy advocates. Yeah, yeah. The, the the people who wanted to keep their wood shingles, whoever those people might have been, <laughs> didn't so. want to pay the extra buck for the new tile, right. whatever you know, the extra costs or wait for the shipping. Maybe yeah. they just loved the character of their neighborhood. That's right. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and just to be fair, I did put up lack of materials or, or natural resources since okay. that was mentioned. Great. No. I also want to put up a lack of alarms. One of my favorite things. Sort of a catch-all term. <laughs> you can kind of use that in a lot of ways, but go ahead. Yes. So the night the Yankees burned Broadway. This is an article in Early American Studies by Benjamin Carp. The absence of many inhabitants, the fact that the Continental Army had carried off all the bells in town to melt them 
down for artillery, the lack of timely alarm, and the inhabitants' inability or unwillingness to fight the fire amid chaos and military occupation all exacerbated the effects of the spreading of the fire. Several people later testified that several of the pump handles in the city were broken or in disrepair, and that the handles of many of the fire buckets had been cut. Hmm. So, you know... I guess back in the day at this time, I was learning that the usually when there was a fire, the church bells would go off Mm -hmm. and this would alert the people, wake everyone up if it was the middle of the night and also get people to come down and help put the fire out. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the uh, you know, it's the American Revolution there um, that evening that there were no bells ringing. Mm. And that was because all the bells had been melted in order to make ammunition. Hmm. Don't get rid of your alarms. Check your smoke detectors, everyone. <laughs> yes. Here's your reminder. Oh, man. So I, I, I'm going to keep doing this. So I guess get used to it. But I keep yeah. bringing up the parallels to their modern. The Please. Modern era, this is this yes. is what we want to talk about. <laughs> we used to have in this country a whole system of disaster warning sirens. That were put up after the cold or during the Cold War to warn of missile attacks or, mm. or, or attacks from the air uh, from our from our our, our our communist adversaries, and we've let them rust in place and have completely <gasps> most places have some places have maintained them. But I live in Eagle Rock neighborhood of of Los Angeles, and I love to go walk around and take pictures of them because they're cool old rusty. Things on huh. poles that have just been long abandoned, and it's a sign of urban decay that mm. I think makes a good photograph. Um, but we used to have a whole system of these sorts of alarms. We also used to have things like the reverse 911. Well, we still have them, but they're essentially use- useless now, like the reverse 911 system through landline telephones or the emergency broadcast system through <laughs> over the air television. If the government has to warn you right now about an emergency, and you don't have your cell phone next to you, or you don't have a smartphone, or or service, right? Or service. Wow. How is it going to warn you? It used to right. have all of these ways of doing so, um, and our shift to streaming television online, to not listening to the radio, to listening to Spotify or a podcast instead. Not to say podcasts are bad. They're right. Awesome. No, no, they're, they're great. Nice they're awesome. Right. Yeah, we love them. You know, NPR <laughs> used to be able to break in with some some live breaking news, and, and we we are not going to do that. Um, or you know, you might be, you used to be able to get a reverse nine one one call on your landline telephone. Those things have been they're tr- they've tried. They are trying to replace those with those alerts you get on your phone. The presidential alerts, the, the Amber the, Alerts, the Amber yeah. Alerts, those things. Right, right. Um, some of them are opt out. You can actually go into your settings and just turn them off. Right. Um, oh. uh, None, them. there's uh, one kind that you can't, but the alarmy would never do that. <laughs> but there's there's a real gap. We really did sort of have a really comprehensive system of a, a comprehensive alert system in the United States for a few decades there that has kind of disappeared again. Do you think that's wow. a result of like cost or technology just moving too quickly to like 
key, I mean, other than just like maintaining like a good old fashioned landline that people maybe just don't want, like why, why do you think so, that so is? it's, I think some of it's both. I mean, maintaining those sirens were, that was obviously a cost thing. Right. Um, we could, it, there's, there's no reason that we couldn't have kept those sirens up, except it was just expensive and deemed not really necessary any longer. Mm. Um, the places that we do keep them up was when they are still regularly used for natural hazard warnings, like the mm-hmm. Midwest for tornadoes. Yes. Um, they're the same sirens. Um, they've wow. kept them up. They've modernized them. They still use them. Some small towns that still are really heavily reliant on volunteer fire departments uh, also still have the siren on the top of the volunteer firehouse in case their pagers don't work um, that they test once a day. The town I grew up in was like that. Um, but Los Angeles doesn't. Wow, I I didn't even know they existed to be honest, and now I'm gonna walk around and try and spot them in my spot a siren. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, please. Yeah, they look like something out of like Fallout the video game. It's they're they're pretty crazy looking. They're just these on top of a big rusty pole. It feels like such a wasted resource. It, It makes me so angry. I mean, we could probably. We could nowadays, we could definitely use them for floods or for fires or for earthquakes. I I could think of a a million reasons why it would be useful to have them in tip top shape. Earthquakes would be great. We have the technology to give you a couple of minutes warning for an earthquake. They're installed in in hospitals. Hopefully you've all got that app on your phone that can warn Mm. you in case of an earthquake and give you a couple of minutes. (laughs) Those could be wired into mass alert sirens. And in some places where they still exist, they are. But, you know. Like I said, that used to be a much more comprehensive blanket across the country than it is now. Now, I feel like we should talk about the uh, what was happening at the time of this fire. Mm-hmm. Let's get into the uh, revolution, I guess, the American Revolution and, and, and some of the players that night. First up, we should put American General George Washington up on the board. Hmm. Who's this guy? Who's this character? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So this is, uh, according to Ben Karp, who's going to be our uh, guest expert. Uh, He was also our guest expert for the Boston Tea Party uh, episode. And we're excited to talk to him about this aspect. As early as January 1776, Washington's advisors wrung their hands over three harsh choices to fortify and defend the city to abandon it to the British, or to consign it to the flames. General Nathaniel Green urged Washington not to hand New York City to the British. Quote, should the enemy get footing there, he wrote, the difficulty of dislodging them would be inconceivable. Burn or garrison the city. The New York Convention had given Washington its blessing to abandon the city if necessary. But on August 22nd, it wrote to him concerning disturbing rumors that in the event of an American withdrawal, the city would be immediately burnt by the retreating soldiery and that any man is authorized to set it on fire. Washington hastened to assure the convention that the rumors were not founded upon authority from me. I am so sensible of the value of such a city and the consequences of its destruction that nothing but the last necessity would induce me to give orders for that purpose." Despite his obliging tone, Washington later confessed in a letter to his cousin, quote, had I been left to the dictates of my own judgment, New York should have been laid in ashes before I quitted it. Wow. So this was part of a strategy or or would have been part of a strategy based on the sort of pressure that was coming from the British. Correct. If we can't, if, if, if we can't have the city, neither can you. We can't hold it. 
it's too powerful if you were to get a hold of it. So we might as well burn it down. But then they decided against it. Well, unclear, right? So we don't know if perhaps Washington just told the convention that, you know, uh, no, 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 there's no way I'm going to burn it. And then sent his people to actually burn it. Oh. Um, uh, but there's nothing unclear. backing that up in terms of evidence, physical evidence that could... There's not could, a ton, uh, but... Just circumstantial and then hearsay, right? Perhaps uh, Professor Karp is going to okay. have more evidence Interesting. Um, uh, for this. But, you know, this was an important city. This was a huge port. This was... If, if, if and when the British did eventually take over New York City, which was for a period of... I want to say eight years, you know, it was under martial law and uh, the the British had hold of it. The pizza was like fish pizza <laughs> or I was like meat pies. It was so yes. gross. It was gross. Yeah. <laughs> the rats really, really suffered, took yeah. over. Yeah. The rats wore like, um, like one of those monocles and they all read uh, newspapers and stuff yes, like that. Yes, even the rats had to speak with a British Top accent. Rats and, yeah, yeah, it was weird. It was... <laughs> <laughs> it was fun. It was cool, but it was a little bit. It and, was weird. Yes, and at four o'clock, everyone had tea. That's right. Um, what stands out to me about this is like kind of the, I guess, the evolution of war tactics. That like now we just like bomb places because we have that technology. But like back in the day, it was like, well, they're just gonna like straight up physically invade our space. So let's just instead of them burning it down and us fleeing, we'll just burn it down and flee so that there's nothing for them to like take over. Like what a we still really that, extreme though. sure, but like that not if, to this extent, obviously. Right. Mm-hmm. Like this just seems like this is like the um, it's like they're the big move is this we'll just burn it all down, right? Yeah. I don't know. But we retreating armies routinely like blow up bridges or but can you imagine like blowing up New York City now? No, like, no, no, of course not. That's obviously <laughs> it's just well, unthinkable. It like we're going to well, leave LA, so we'll just burn it all down. So the you know, but it also is important when they're referring to New York City. It's basically just like Canal Street and South, right? Yes, sure, much smaller. Yes, and I think there were only uh, maybe like five years earlier there were twenty thousand inhabitants, and by the time seventeen seventy six comes rolls around, they knew that there was going to be war. They knew that New York City was going to be one of the main places they were going to target. And so I think the the city is down to 5,000 mm-hmm. people that are really just living there at the time. And mm-hmm. for the most part, part, it's people who just work the city. So people who have shops or um, taverns and uh, work at the um, docks and, you know, keeping are, are really keeping this, the city going. Now, I feel like another potential culprit okay. is uh, we could put the rogue patriot arsonists. Okay. Again, this is from Benjamin Carp. wrote, during the time the rebels were in possession of the town, many of them were heard to say, were heard to say that they would burn it sooner than it should become a nest for the Tories, mm-hmm. wrote British officer Frederick Mackenzie. And in several and several inhabitants who were mostly violently attached to the rebel cause have been heard to declare they would set fire to their own houses sooner than they should be occupied by the king's troops. Mm-hmm. Lord Francis R- Rowden, 
blame the fire on some villains left in the town. These scoundrels had mingled unsuspected among the loyalists who had remained in town. Lieutenant Henry Strike agreed that with most other British observers that rebels that concealed themselves in the town had started the fire. Soldiers and townspeople discovered a number of men and women presumed to be rebels with the tools of arson under their greatcoats, such as casks of powder, fireballs, or bundles of matches dipped in rosin and brimstone. Hmm. The captured men claimed that the combustibles had been in storage for fitting out rebel fireships and that they were just carrying them away from the fire for safety. But of course, they uh, weren't believed. There are accounts that a man was caught with matches and was then thrown into the fire hmm. by soldiers. Right. Um, so the. I, I, it must have been just like a, a confusing night. <laughs> well, I wonder, and I was just to sort of open this up to Jay, when you talk about risk and you talk about hazard and vulnerability. Are uh, what are the are there sociological factors that come into play with people and and with I guess their behavior and also sort of areas where there's lots of conflict or high tension between sort of people at you know and that kind of thing. I mean, I guess I would just open it to you broadly to sort of talk about that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, vulnerability is a social thing. Um, it's it's oftentimes referred to in in the sorts of papers that I write and that I read as social vulnerability. So when we're really talking about there is sort of society's relationship to a community and the community's relationship to its neighbors and to itself and those sorts of things. So absolutely. So the fact that this is a a mostly empty city filled with some loyalists and perhaps a few saboteurs is like yeah, that's high risk. Obviously, <laughs> something that's yeah. There's so so there there's going to be be something to talk about there as far as the as as that both the hazard incidents if they started the fire, but then also the vulnerability of the place, right? Um, yeah, I, I think yes. Nod my head, absolutely. Also, mm-hmm. war is a hazard, and this mm. is whether or not this was like legitimate war or a war crime before we would have called it such a thing, but like it's still part of war, like. That's still inherent to violent armed conflict is the fact that some people might break the rules in it and go a little overboard and do some things that we view as even within the confines of the rules of, of legitimate warfare, like that, you know, out of bounds. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, the, I, the, I like I that. Love that point. I just love it. War is, is a hazard. Mm-hmm. The hazard, oh, the of, hazard war. of war. I the love hazards it. Of war, yeah. This is why we hate war. Why would you <laughs> put yourself in that hazard? Yeah, Obviously, I don't know about you guys. I'm sometimes. against war. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> let's uh, let's put the hazards of war up on the board. And while we're talking uh, about the people, perhaps we should put organized patriot spies up there as well. Mm-hmm. Or disorganized, right? There might have just been some patriotic zeal amongst people yes. not, not attached to the chain of command as well. That's a really I mean, good point. What we point. would call nowadays like a, a a partisan or a terrorist. That that yes, I think that's a really good point. In that things were happening really fast, and at that time, people didn't have the luxury of technology to communicate. And so, while things are happening really fast communications not being it, it can only be so fast mm-hmm. or can only get to you 
at a certain period. Yeah, unless you had two of those cans with a big string. Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, and, and you, had, you need a really long string. And you need a basically a rope yes, we're talking it's about. it's huge. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I mean, like the United States is not, especially at that time, like some monolith, right? I'm not a historian, mm. but the uh, my understanding of, of the early U.S. is that like we weren't all on the same page. A couple decades later, when Washington's president, there's Shea's Rebellion. Um, like in New, in Western New York, but still in New York, like people did not necessarily, they could have been rebels, anti-British patriots, but not necessarily seeing Washington as the unassailable leader of their movement. Right. That's um, true. So just because he says, doesn't, don't burn the city doesn't mean we're not going to burn the city. Yes. Um, the, uh, that's all, I, like I said, I'm just going to pull that out of nowhere. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, I, there was such a, uh, it, to your point, I just... Exactly. New York City, not everyone was for or against the war or for or against the British. Like there were a lot of loyalists that lived in the city at the time. And it, it was. What do we call that? Control. Can that just be like the growing pain? Like, how do you encapsulate mm, that? The growing pain. Growing pain. American growing, growing pains. <laughs> can you can can, the, can Molly cue the growing pains theme song yes. right after Clinton says that? Um, well, let me read this about the the spies. This is according to Benjamin Carp again. Uh, the strong possibility remains that the Patriot spies purposely set the fire, acting under secret orders. It is difficult to guess how much of the plan, the removal of the bells, the disabling of the firefighting equipment, the planting of combustible materials, the timing and weather conditions, and the setting of several fires at once they had orchestrated beforehand. It is also impossible to prove whether any of the mysterious figures were under orders from Washington, though Abraham Patton was likely one of the continental sabotage specialists though we cannot ascribe specific responsibility we can assert in the broadest terms that americans sympathetic to the whig cause set new york city on fire in september 1776 oh wow so i mean i'm sure when we speak to uh professor carp he'll you know let us know the specifics of why we can absolutely ascribe to that. Hmm. Um, Seems like he blamed Patriot spies there, sent him right to the alarmist jail. But yeah. we—that's not us. That's yeah. Ben. Yeah, we have our own due diligence. <laughs> <laughs> um, but while we're while we're putting, uh, uh, you know, both let's put both sides up on the board while we're doing this, uh, the, because we have to put the British up on the board as well. This is again according to Benjamin Carp. The British armed forces could have bombarded and destroyed the city any time they liked, just as they had set fire to Charleston, Massachusetts, Falmouth, Maine, and Jamestown, Rhode Island during the previous year. The British set fire to several towns during the Revolution, and Americans complained bitterly every time their enemies set such fires. The Americans even listed the fact that George III had burnt our town as one of their grievances in the Declaration of Independence. In this case, however, the British were determined to preserve New York City if they could. Other Whigs accused the British and Hessian occupying forces of burning their own headquarters, even though this contradicted common sense. After the burning of Charlestown and Falmouth, during the previous year, many were predisposed to assume the worst about British depredations. John Sloss Hobart reported from Washington's camp and played to Patriot prejudices and blamed the British command fire 
uh, for the fire. He claimed that the British troops had torched the city so that they could begin plundering the mainland. Hobart was regularly consulting with Washington, so one wonders if Washington approved the circulation of this version of events. So coming from uh, Washington's camp, they're saying it was the British. For a long time, the, uh, the history books did say it was the British. Mm. But again, history is told by the victors. Mm-hmm. And, per, and it, perhaps won. it behooved them to keep mm-hmm. that rumor going for a while until I guess now we're, you know, coming back and reassessing this situation. Hey, wait a minute. Could it have been George Washington? It probably wouldn't have been uh, a po- popular to once the, the Americans won the, the revolution to be like, you know what? I think it was our president, George Washington, who set the city on fire. Hmm. Um, so it was a convenient rumor. This is quite a whodunit. Another thing that comes to mind for me is it happened that the fire started at a tavern around like midnight. Right. Who's to say, you know, you've got people drinking all the time. There's fire. I guess it was starting to be kind of a cooler thing. You know, it's September, end of September. It's cooling down. Maybe mm-hmm. you, you light the, the fireplace and something goes wrong and perhaps it was an accident let me tell you i went camping with some buddies one time when i was in high school and uh we got real drunk and uh we woke i woke up in the morning and there was like half of a tree trunk dangling over the top of the fire we just pulled it at drunk in the middle of the night to keep the fire going and i was like "Woo, baby we survived that one (laughs) jay do you take this into consideration uh in your research well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, like, <laughs> drunk high schoolers. Not, not this, not, not that story exactly. But like this, in, the incidents of the hat, like the 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 spark that sets the fire, sort of thing, mm-hmm. is not necessarily the cause of a disaster. If a fire becomes a disaster, we have so many things that have to happen in sequence, all the way down a chain. Uh, somebody throwing a cigarette out the window of a car or uh, a, a few drunk kids camping and, and going a little haywire with their campfire, starting a massive forest fire that burns a town. I mean, obviously, there's some negligence there. Obviously, there's some there's there's something to talk about with the ways, the specifics of the ways that the fire started. But in the end, do we really care how the fire started? If it if the reason that it burned a neighborhood was because the neighborhood was constructed and designed the way right. that it was in a canyon where wind funneled very predictably in a way that left it quite vulnerable to fire, and it, everyone had wood shingles on their house, and we had decided to push the the timeline for changing that back a decade, and we had uh, volunteer firefighters that were out of town on a war, and no one had knew how to use the fire engines, like all this sort of chain of things that might have happened. Um, it's almost immaterial how the fire starts. That's not the cause of the disaster. Again, the disaster has as much to do with the vulnerability as it does mm-hmm. the actual hazard. Um, and so I think that it's it's an important part of the equation because if you zero out that multiplication, you still end up with zero on either side. But it has to, that's the point. It has to be some non-zero entity in both the hazard and the vulnerability sections of that multiplication equation to actually equal any amount of real risk. 
Well, with that, I think we're ready to take a quick break and start knocking things off the board. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Okay, great. Who's to blame for the 1776 Great Fire of New York? Is it wooden shingles? <laughs> Careful what you protest for. Lack of materials slash natural resources, nearsighted policy advocates, lack of alarms, American General George Washington, rogue patriot arsonists, the hazards of war, disorganized patriot spies, or the British. <laughs> this is a hard list. This is tough because... There's not a lot of fat to trim here. <laughs> <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Not a lot of jokes got put up on the board. The other thing I will say, and I don't know how this fits, it maybe just gets rolled up into hazards of war, but a lot of the firefighters in New York yes. were recruited yeah. to be in the Continental Army, mm-hmm. which was with Washington up in the northern part of Manhattan. So I don't know how we... That's really um, just hazards of war, but right. there were no firefighters there. Missing it was just sort of the British. 
Uh, firefighters yeah, like, MIA. Our, our whole firefighting system, right? Because if I'm not mistaken, at that time, New York City relied on a pretty localized volunteer fire force and had recently obtained some uh, like rudimentary fire engines that mm. were, I mean, I, I think this still stands today. If you've got a bunch of people who show up and don't know how to use the fire engine, it doesn't matter if it's been sabotaged or not. Right. Um, I doubt that... I, I, I yeah, can't could, run it. I can't run it. Yeah, if LAFD parked an engine out front of your house <laughs> oh. and you needed to go out and turn it on, would you know how to do it? Right. No, I, um, I would love to see that. would be a really that. fun exercise, though, I would say. How fast can you TV figure out a fire show? <laughs> a good reality show or something. Um, but anyway, yeah, I mean, the fact that we've got this small number of volunteer firefighters that were uh, a Venn diagram of perfect circle population with the kind of people who would be soldiers in this war... Um, yeah, I mean, that's the reason that they don't draft firefighters and don't draft police officers and don't draft other right. key personnel in like uh -huh. various other sectors of our of our of our systems and, and economy uh, nowadays. Um, so <laughs> sorry, I'm just laughing because I'm thinking of myself being drafted as a firefighter. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you're a firefighter, you wouldn't get drafted. You wouldn't I know, get drafted. I know. I've in the in the uh, opposite world. You know, I'm glad that's you can't get drafted. Is my point. <laughs> Well, in 1776 in New York, you would have shown you would have come out and with your mandatory water bucket and looked for the firefighters, and they wouldn't have been there. Oh, they would have, yeah, <laughs> they just, it would have been like you in the exit row. They'd be like, "Are you going to help us out in disaster?" And you're like, "Yeah, sure, 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 I got it." And then, <laughs> exactly. then it happens, and you're like, "What do I?" You're <laughs> um, yeah, I'll help you by screaming at the top of my lungs, <laughs> waving my hands up in the air. Well, what are we going to? Uh, I feel like we, I guess we could fold things into each other is the sure. best I can say here. Okay. Um, the, the wooden shingles, it's not their fault. It's more about the policy, right? So yeah. what, what do you Can't think? Can't blame Jay? big shingle. Big yeah, shingle, yeah. No. not to blame. They're, we can blame big shingle for plenty yeah. of other things. But. They realized the problem too. They were trying to fix the shingle situation. Exactly. Yeah. They're if aware. Anything, it's they were the like, our, our new stone shingle product is going to save you. <laughs> yes. you just invest. Um, Lack of alarms, I also feel like, is like after, you know, like if there had been alarms, maybe I don't know. I think, al I think alarms would help. Right to to Jay's but point earlier, I think that so I I'm kind of on the team of maybe getting rid of them here because uh -huh. for two reasons. So I think generally speaking, alarms are extremely important. And my whole little tangent there before about how alert systems are are a huge concern <laughs> even in the modern era. But I think if you if you had been able to alert people in New York, a they would have gotten out of the way. I don't know that this that this disaster this incident was really one where tons of people died it was more of a loss of buildings right like, yeah sure some right. people died i don't know the numbers but you know this wasn't like a great loss of life was the big black mark it's that so much of the city's buildings burned so people did get out of the way even without the alarms mm -hmm. or they were already out of the way because the city was empty and yes. b it was the other reason you'd want uh alarms is to alert the firefighters so that they can come and help but as we've already discussed the firefighters right. were not even there there were you can't alert nobody so i think <laughs> the lack of alarms here normally would be a concern yes, but in okay. this specific case yeah it seems like it speaks to the bigger sense. problem it was <laughs> all yeah. vulnerable so if an alarm goes off in an empty city does anyone ever right actually right exactly yeah. yeah so yeah. let's take off lack of alarms let's take off the uh, lack of natural resources right 
or, or materials. I think we can take that. For the and slate I, roofs. That played into the slate. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it all boils down to nearsighted policy advocates. Yeah, careful what you protest for in nearsighted policy yeah. advocates are kind of like the same. Like the policy decisions, someone mm-hmm. was making policy decisions about whether the city should be made entirely out of wood mm. and decided right. that it could be. Mm. Right. So so what uh, do we fold we into keep, what? Let, let's keep careful what you protest for because that feels... Okay. Well, I know what you mean, but isn't it the part of the... Because are we blaming the populace there? Like people who protest, I guess, I don't know how you'd sort of consider them, but these right. are just citizens who may maybe weren't sold properly on what the actual science oh, or I ideas behind uh, upgrading to... Again, this is, has to do with slate shingles. So <laughs> I, 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 would, I would imagine we can get both nearsighted policy advocates and careful what you protest for off the... Off the board, just because. Yeah. Okay. I. Yeah. To it, me, I don't know. There's more sort of more specific elements to blame for this fire than sort of the uh, the combustibility of the city. I you don't know. know. What I'm I, I think I think Jay might might say otherwise, right, Jay? Because perhaps the fire what could have been started and it could have been a small fire, and if the city wasn't so combustible, they could have just put it out with a few buckets. I agree with that. I mean, I think that Mm. even today, there's no such thing as a fireproof house. But um, I think, yeah, I do think that the combustibility of the city is a core element of that. Mm. Back to the equation, the vulnerability side, right? Right. If If you zero out your vulnerability by building somehow a fireproof city, then no matter how many fire hazard incidents you have, you'll never have any risk of fire disaster. Um, So the fact that that vulnerability involved some amount of combustible buildings um so do we keep nearsighted policy advocates yes i I think so now we're left with george washington uh rogue patriot arsonist which i think we can fold into george washington because okay i suspect that they would have been under his rare for me to play like the patriot in a conversation, but yes. I mean, I feel like we might be giving George Washington a bit of a harsh shake here. Like he did write a letter to his cousin saying, man, it's a good thing that happened by accident because I wish we could have burned it, which like makes him out to be kind of a scumbag in this story, but yes. not necessarily like he clearly was not like, hey, wink, like, look what we did. Right, um, right, right, right. I think That's he might have written his letter to his cousin a little bit more like we have... We have some some unnamed patriots to thank and give medals to later. Mm. Um, if he'd actually been putting his thumb on the scale there, whereas he's just like, man, it sure was lucky that New York was being New York and mm. uh, <laughs> well, New York being New York. But I. But okay. then to play devil's advocate to that, uh, I. <laughs> perhaps it, what if George Washington had been like, "Hey, everyone, we're leaving. We're not touching the city. We're not gonna." We've been told not to touch it. I don't want to see any of you touch a match as we exit. Like wink, wink. You no, think I think like for listened? real. Yeah. Oh. I think he well, was his a very... soldiers would have, but we talked yeah. about earlier. There's all kinds of other people right. in the city too. There's right. loyalists. There's mm. okay. So okay, we're gonna. We didn't I, have I, that much power. The the dis. I think at this point we can take off the the patriot spies. The spies. Right? Okay. 
are because really the the rogue arsonists are right. Those feel similar to me. What yeah, was the distinction? and I do think we could take the British off the board. Right, because even though they, although they were blamed, right well, after. So there's the like incident. a difference between yeah. like the British like version of George Washington, right? And there's like maybe what about rogue British soldiers who just want to do some looting, right? Um, so hard to tell, I, right? Because we don't know. We weren't there. I feel like this is one where maybe the. I don't know. This is back to like George Washington. The leadership wanted to be able to wipe its hands. Whichever leadership of the, you know, assuming one of these sides was responsible, there was layers of deniable plausibility, plausible deniability, excuse me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Layers of plausible deniability between the people getting their hands dirty and, and the future president and general in the British army, right? Um, And because we can't, we can't know what actually happened, right? Because we're going to have to make a kind of a gut call. I, I think we should. This is where I'm leaning towards. Go we for send it. the hazards of war to the alarmist jail and we slap the nearsighted policy advocates for letting the city be so combustible. Mm. Wow. I like that because I think the hazards of war is one that's like, there was this fire was gonna happen, right? It, mm-hmm. Like regardless of which side, it's again, it's almost immaterial who who throws the cigarette out of the car. Mm-hmm. It's it you know it was a war in 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 a contested city in a war. A fire was gonna be a thing, and that's the hazards of you know. I guess we could try and get more specific. Maybe maybe your your other guest will be able to get you guys a little bit more specific and say exactly who threw the cigarette out the window. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I guess I would like to make the argument that like the disaster is, is was war. you you have to be ready for there to be a fire during a war. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. I I like it. I feel good about it. I'm gonna call it Cut. nearsighted policy advocates. You're getting the big slap. The hazards of war. You're going to the alarmist jail. I feel so good. I feel like we finally put war in the alarmist jail. <laughs> How many I feel like are this is a, a, such a rare opportunity for me to get to talk about my work and someone say, I feel so good now. You're, <laughs> you're such a bummer. <laughs> yeah, Jay, you must be used to oh. looking at a lot of sullen faces. <laughs> oh, really? That's the hazard equation? Jay, that's I, how vulnerable we I are? can't think you enough for joining us today and i honestly truly believe not only have we learned so much but we had fun doing it oh thank you so much for having me it's been awesome in the aftermath the 1776 great fire of new york marked the beginning of a seven-year occupation of New York City by British forces during the Revolutionary War. Following the incident, the British built their own fire department in the city, but otherwise left the damage unrepaired. After American victory in 1783, firefighting techniques did not improve despite the fast-growing New York City population. Slowly, new and improved measures were taken for fire emergencies in the future but the city remained behind the curve for decades. And two more fires in 1835 and 1845 
devastated the heart of Manhattan before stricter fire codes and safety measures were implemented. Visit our website and let us know who you think is to blame at www.thealarmistpodcast.com. And follow us on Instagram, at The Alarmist Podcast, and on Twitter, at Alarmist The. You can also send us your thoughts via email to thealarmistpodcast at gmail.com. Today's episode was produced and engineered by Clayton Early, with fact-checking by Chris Smith and editing by Molly Hockey. Thank you to our associate producer and researcher, Alex Paul. The Alarmist is executive produced by Rebecca Delgado-Smith and the Erios Network. Tune in next week. We'll be discussing the breakup of Ross and Rachel. Erios. Powered by ACAST. 